Amen. If you have your Bible, I want to direct you to the book of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, chapter 6 and verse 33. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Thankful for the incredible presence of the Lord that we have the privilege of feeling and worshiping in this morning. Never, I strive to never take for granted that I know him. That in all of my frailty and in all of my just being a human, that we can know him, that we can feel the presence of the almighty God. Amen. That's what's happened here already. That's what's going to happen throughout this service. It's the promise of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, Matthew, this is right in the middle of what we commonly call the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus issued this defining characteristic of what it means to be a New Testament believer. When he said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And so this morning, I want to preach on this subject, the faith behind first. The faith behind seeking first. Would you set your Bible, your device down? Would you ask God to speak to us in just the next few moments? Lord, thank you. Your incredible presence saturates this place as we gather to worship you. And I pray, Lord, now as we worship you by looking into your word that you would speak to us. I ask you, God, that your word, Lord, would God, God go into the very depths of our heart. That your word would unleash within us, Lord God, a faith, God, that you are and that you're a rewarder, Lord God. And God, that our faith would be expressed in our obedience to seek first your kingdom in our lives. Let that be established today. Let that be affirmed today. Let that be initiated today, I pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you say amen? amen. God bless you. You may be seated. The Bible starts out with what may be those familiar words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The eternal, only living God, who's self-existent and without cause, this God created all that exists, and he did it all by himself. He created the earth, the sun, moon, and stars. He created the estimated 100 billion galaxies that surround us, and he named them all. God created it all, and God deemed it all as good. But good was not good enough. And so in Genesis 2 and 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man 
of the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being distinct from all creation and formed in God's image. Adam became a living soul and now all of creation was deemed very good. But Adam was alone. And so God formed Eve. And Adam and Eve became united as man and wife. And they lived in a place prepared for them in Eden. A paradise designed by God to provide all that they could ever and would ever need. Think about it. While you're stressing over Christmas decor, they live in a Pinterest perfect home. You couldn't buy their designer. Bill Gates couldn't hire their designer. It was flawless. It was perfect. They didn't hang Christmas lights. The galaxies provided Christmas lights. They even enjoyed a perfect marriage. And they, I'm not going there, and they had the privilege of a face to face relationship with God who communed with them every day. And yet from the onset of human history, God exercised his right of ownership over all. God gave Eden to Adam, formed it, created it for him, but he commissioned Adam to manage and care for this paradise. And in paradise, God reserved for himself the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that stood in the garden. Genesis 2 and 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Demonstrating his matchless love for humanity, God provided the abundant blessing of enjoying all of his creation for the obedience of abstaining from the one. They got all by being obedient to the one. But tragically, though they were living in a problem-free paradise that you and I can only imagine, Eve 
and ultimately Adam, somehow in that place with perfect relationship between one another and between God, in that place that we can only imagine in the 21st century, in that place, Eve somehow lost her reverent awe of a holy creator God that she met face to face every day. And this loss of reverent awe of the holy God triggered an inner discontentment with his presence. And somehow, when she had all but one, she became discontented with the provision that God had granted. She just wanted more. The human who had all but one just wanted the one thing she could not have. She wanted lordship and she wanted deity. Face-to-face fellowship with God had become so mundane that Eve became fixated on what she perceived she lacked. This fascination with the tree did not go unnoticed for Satan, the father of rebellion and discontentment himself. He waited like a hungry lion, just waiting for the opportunity to pounce and exploit Eve's growing unbelief. That opportunity would eventually arise. How long this lasted, how long it took for Eve to get to this day, we don't really know. But there came a day where a loss of reverence for God and a discontentment with his provision resulted in Eve being near the tree and lingering near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on that day, Satan, who is also the master manipulator and father of lies, appeared as a serpent in the tree. And Satan distorted God's clear truth and God's clear command so close to the truth that it sounded plausible. You will not die. You can indeed be a God. The one thing, the only thing that God had reserved for himself became more desirable to Eve than all a paradise. Eve valued the fruit of that tree as good. She valued it as pleasant and she deemed it as desirable. And unequivocally expressing her unbelief, Eve faithfully took the forbidden fruit. She ate it. She gave it to Adam and he ate it. And fueled by this inexcusable loss of reverence, and this inexplicable doubt that God would provide all that they ever needed, Adam and Eve initiated a coup of ownership. 
arrogantly Adam and Eve, the created beings formed in God's image, usurped God's will with their will. They foolishly dismissed the nature of God and they authorized for themselves permission to ignore his word. They deemed God's values as irrelevant and they deemed the forbidden fruit as good. But when they ate of the fruit and when they acted out their unbelief, the promise of being as a God and the promise of ruling one's life never ever materialized because all along it was nothing more than a hallucination of hell. It's always a charade when we look in the mirror and convince ourselves that we can be our own God. It's just a hallucination the day that we ever seize the throne of our own life, thinking that we can secure our future, that we can affirm our being, and that we can satisfy our soul. And as they consummated their rebellion that day, they were instantly struck by an inescapable shame, a shame now towards each other, a shame towards God. Shame was followed by fear as they hid from God, and fear was followed by excuses as Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. Their charade of self-rule their charade of self-sufficiency, their charade of self-satisfaction came crashing down as God came walking into the garden. You may have read the story, the serpent is cursed. Satan's destruction is finalized. Eve is judged with sorrow and submission and Adam is judged with sorrow and sweat. And in the end, because they, Adam and Eve forfeit the pleasure of all a paradise for the pseudo-pleasure of enjoying one single tree. What Satan had called being as the gods had done nothing but produce shame, fear, sorrow, sweat, death, and separation from God. But here in the garden, the God who was owner of all demonstrated that ownership by providing all that humanity would ever need because even in the failure of Adam and Eve, God provided the promise of a coming Messiah and God covered their naked shame. This sombering, sobering story this morning that is the beginning of our story, Adam and Eve, demonstrates two universal truths that undergird and that shape God's plan for human stewardship. Two universal truths that shape how we should manage what God entrusts to us. And those truths are, first of all, that God possesses all and, and as a sovereign owner. And secondly, that God provides all that we need as his children. 
upon those two truths, they are the foundation and they shape our role as a steward of all that God entrusts to us. He possesses all as sovereign owner and he provides all to his children, all that we will ever need. You see, throughout the calendar of time, how men and women manage their time, how men and women have managed their giftings, how men and women have managed their possessions has been determined by their faith in or their lack of faith in these two truths. Either by faith they seek first the kingdom of God or by unbelief they seek first their self-interest and self-rule and self-pleasure. The faith behind first is the faith that God is the owner of all and that God will provide all that we ever have need of. And so it should not surprise us that when we turn the pages of Scripture and we open up the New Testament and Jesus begins to lay out the foundational principles of his kingdom in this newly inaugurated kingdom of God that Jesus establishes the framework of human stewardship upon the same very two truths that we find in the garden. In the beginning of the kingdom of God, Jesus is clear that the same truths that undergird the Old Testament plan of stewardship are the same two truths that undergird the New Testament plan of stewardship. We've already said them. God is the sovereign owner of all, and God will provide all that we ever need. We see this evidence in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Jesus is teaching many of the counterculture characteristics of his kingdom. We often call this the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus reveals the Beatitudes that would define his followers. He clarifies the mission of disciples to be as salt and light in the world to attract people to Jesus. Jesus reestablishes and or establishes the eternal truth that his word is forever settled. He calls his followers to a higher righteousness of God-pleasing motives, of God-pleasing conduct, that it supersedes the superficial and self-serving lifestyles of the religious elite of that day. Jesus further applies this higher standard of moral conduct and of living out our faith to giving and praying and fasting. And all three of these disciplines fall under the umbrella of pleasing God more than pleasing others or ourselves. All three are connected to our mission to be salt and light in a dark world. But then in Matthew 6, chapter 9, verses 19 through 33, Jesus slows down the pace and now deals specifically with the transformed attitude of New Testament giving, which by application can be broadly applied to every area of our life. Jesus in Matthew 6 
and verse 19 teaches us that we should never value possessions enough to seek after them for God already owns them all. In verse 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus highlights the vital importance that we recognize of recognizing what or who our attention is focused upon. Do we seek after earthly treasure? Are we seeking after cultural affirmation? Are we seeking after self-defined success? Or do we seek after God and the priorities and the identity and the provision of his kingdom? Please understand this morning that God does not teach that it is intrinsically wrong to accumulate possessions or to have stuff and things in this world. But he's teaching that our motive for and our management of those possessions must always be first focused on the priorities and the values of his kingdom. Everybody say first. As Brother John's preached two Sundays ago from this passage, how we manage those possessions how we manage the things God has entrusted us, reveals not only who we are, but determines who we will be. Self-serving or kingdom-minded is determined by what we treasure and what we focus upon because treasure always pulls our heart. Jesus powerfully drives home that truth when he declared in verse 24, in wrapping up this first principle, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, in God's economy, there's no allowance by God for the fictitious middle ground of striving to both appease our desire and to appease God's desire. There is no such thing as a compromise between our own selfish interests and seeking first the kingdom of God because divided loyalty is impossible. The scriptures make clear that God is either the Lord of all or he is not Lord at all in our lives. So how I value and how I manage my stuff reveals whether I am motivated by reverent faith in a holy God or whether I am motivated by the unbelief of selfish materialism. Jesus just made it clear that we should not seek after possessions or value possessions enough to seek after them for seeking after them's sake because God already owns it all. Secondly, Jesus teaches us 
in Matthew 6 and 25. That we should not value possessions enough that we worry about them. We should not seek after them, but we should not worry about them. He said in verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus doesn't deny that you need to be clothed. Amen? Jesus doesn't deny that you need to eat. A hearty, amen. Jesus doesn't deny that you're better off under shelter than exposed to the elements. And we all say thank you, Jesus, for our homes. But Jesus addresses that insatiable appetite of our human nature. That we just want more stuff or more affirmation or more Success. This appetite that breeds misguided worry and anxiety over our survival, our stuff, and our security. You see, as children of God, as disciples, Jesus is trying to help us, to teach us that you should not capitulate to anxiety. You should not surrender to worry over earthly possessions because In essence, worry is practical atheism. Anxiety is a denial of the sovereignty of God. It is an unbelief that God will provide all that you need. Jesus even points out that if God cares for the birds and if God cares for the flowers in the field, then how much more does he care about his children? Jesus just steps into our living rooms and says, you know what? No matter how hard you fret, no matter how long you worry, you can shake and and curl up in an anxiety fit, but the reality is you cannot extend your life for one minute. So why worry? Because the same God who owns it all is the God who provides it all to his children. So Jesus then arrives at this point where he proclaims the defining characteristic of what it means to be a son and daughter of Jesus Christ. It is the climatic conclusion of this section of teaching. We read it in our text. Many of us have memorized it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things shall be added to you. A simple yet profound and significant truth that God alone must be the sole priority and governing value of our lives. So don't seek after And don't worry over possessions. Instead, Scripture compels us that we should seek first the kingdom of God. That we should seek first the priorities of His kingdom. That we should seek first 
the commandments of Scripture, that we should seek first the calling that God breathes into our spirit, that we should seek first the command that God would speak to us to do this or to do that, that by faith we seek first, believing that God is the owner of everything and that God will provide all that we need. On this Sunday, I have not come to preach some sophisticated system of theological understanding and I sure haven't come to entertain you with a cute Bible story. But I do come with a mandate to remind us all of the clarion call of Jesus Christ to seek first the priorities and the practices of the kingdom in every area of our life. And that comprehensive witness of Scripture reveals that in order to seek first the kingdom, you must first have faith that God is the sovereign owner of all and that God will provide all that you need. You see, when I see someone or I'm struggling myself, refusing to offer their self in service to God, when I see one who's pretending to be too busy to invest in others, when I see someone who's tightly clinging to their wallet and their possessions, it isn't because of the fill-in-the-blank excuse that we use to justify ourselves. At the core of our refusal, at the core of my refusal to seek first the kingdom of God in every area of my life is a loss of reverent awe for a holy God. It is a discontentment that God will do what he has said he will do. You can sit in front of the mirror and you can tell your loved ones and you can tell everybody who would listen. I'd serve in ministry, but I'm not willing to consecrate this because I deem it to be insignificant. But in reality, it has nothing to do with filling the blank. What it has to do with is you have lost your reverend awe of God and you no longer fear him as the creator of all. And because you don't reverence him, you're okay with being discontented and seeking to seize the seat of ownership for yourself and say, I will be my own God. When you strip away the charades, that is where it's really at. That is where I become gravely concerned when I watch someone and or I struggle myself in trying to live first because ultimately it has nothing to do with the excuses that I tell myself. Ultimately, I have to face the truth of Scripture and realize that when I'm struggling to live out my faith, when I'm struggling to consecrate my life, when I'm struggling to release my grip on my possessions at the heart of the matter, I am struggling to believe that God is who he says he is. And I am struggling to really believe that he will provide everything that I ever have need of. As it was for Eve in the garden, so it is for us today that when we lose our awe of God, 
God and when we lose our respect that he is a holy, self-existent creator God. When we lose that respect and we lose the wonder of his holiness that we will always become fixated by that which we perceive that we lack. And when we become fixated on what we perceive that we lack, we become vulnerable to the hallucinations of hell that seek to deceive us into usurping God's rule in our life, that seek to steal from us the reign of God, that seek to cause us to pull a coup of ownership and usurp God's divine prerogative over our time, over our abilities, and over our possessions. But it doesn't have to be that way. By faith in who God is and by faith in what God does for his children, you and I can seek first the kingdom. For the writer of Hebrews said that we can please God, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that sanctifies you. The same faith that brought you into relationship with God is the same faith that's going to keep you in relationship with God. It's how you were saved. It's how you'll stay saved saved. It is the faith to believe that God is and God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And when I'm wrestling with myself and when I'm struggling with stewardship, it's not about all the things I hide behind. Ultimately, I am wrestling with my faith. Can I believe that God is? Can I believe that God is a diligent rewarder of those who seek after him. And whether I believe or whether I do not believe will be evidenced and manifested by whether I seek first the kingdom of God. Whether my obedience is to his word, his spirit and spiritual authority. My faith in God that is God-pleasing will be evidenced by joyfully offering myself in ministry and using my gifts for his glory. The evidence that I am motivated by faith to seek first the kingdom is when I prioritize my calendar around the priorities of his kingdom and his church. The evidence of my faith that I'm seeking him first is when I faithfully return my tithes unto the Lord of my increase. The evidence of my faith that undergirds seeking him first is when I sacrificially give to the causes and needs that advance his kingdom and that save those separated from God. This is the faith behind First, the faith to believe that God possesses all by divine right and God provides all 
by divine love. The faith behind first. Amen? Worship team can come. What I've sought to communicate today is broadly applicable in every area of our life. Am I seeking first the kingdom of God? Or am I seeking the possessions of this world or worrying about them? But it doesn't have to be that way. I can live above that. I can live in the abundant provision that God has destined for me. By faith, I can do that. Practically, today is our annual Christmas for Christ offering. Where you and I have the opportunity to give our first and our best gift to Christ this Christmas. Christmas for Christ is the opportunity to invest in church planners and new churches around North America. It's our custom in this beginning of December every year to make a commitment to give our best gift to Jesus Christ. It's our custom to do that on a Sunday, to do a commitment card, to bring it down to the front. And that's what we're going to do this morning. You see, when I give beyond myself, I'm investing in the eternal treasure. When I provide a church planner opportunity to reach someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm investing in eternal treasure. The expression of seeking first overshadows all of our life. There's no component of your life that you can shield from this truth. But practically, Jesus chose to teach it within the parameters of our giving because Jesus knew that oftentimes, sometimes more than our calendars and more than our service, it is our bank account that most clearly reveals our faith in Him. And so today, I pray that you would simply be obedient to whatever God has led you to give to Christmas for Christ. We're going to come and pray today because I know what the Lord wants to do. And I don't need any special feeling to know what that's going to be. But in front of you, there's a card. It's in the pocket of a seat in front of you or it's beside you on the front row. Before we come, we're going to pray. And then you'll have the opportunity to write your name, the amount of an offering that you're able to give sometime between now and the first Sunday of January. It's between you and the Lord. No one will know, but God will. 
If you're married, it's between you and your spouse and the Lord. Amen. Would you join me and let's pray right where we're at. And then we're going to fill out our card. And then we're going to come to the front and pray in the broader aspect of this message. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord God, that you created the heavens and the earth. And you did so for our good pleasure. You did so for your sake. But you gave us the benefit of living on earth. You breathed into us the breath of life and we became distinct as a living soul. God, even in our failure, even in our insurrection, you still provided all that we would ever need for what we celebrate in this Christmas season is the greatest defining turning point of history because you came yourself to provide for our eternal salvation. But Lord, you didn't come to just provide for that day. You provide for this day. You didn't just come to prepare a place for us on that day. You provide for us in this day. And I pray the faith of who you are and the faith that you will supply our every need that that faith would arise in this place as you speak into our heart that we would obediently act in faith, that we would sacrificially express our faith, that we would invest in the eternal treasure of your kingdom today. Our motive is pure because it's only between us and you. No one will know, God. But today, we don't just offer ourselves. Today, we offer our best gift to you in this Christmas season. Today, God, I pray for a revival of faith. Today, Lord, I pray for a revival of consecration. Today, Lord, I pray for a revival of hope and of peace that guards and girds our mind and spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you take your card and whatever God speaks to you or has spoken, would you simply write that amount on your card and then would you stand together as you're able. Today's message is not merely to encourage you to give to Christmas or Christ, though I pray you do. Today's message is broadly applicable in every part of our life because in the opportunity we have of this season and the opportunity of launching a new year, you and I, by unwavering faith, can seek first the kingdom of God. And I know by the word of God that God will unlock the windows of heaven and the sound of the abundance of rain will come crashing into your life and your life will overflow with the benefits and the provision and the sufficiency 
and the security of our great and glorious God. Would you come and bring your commitment card and lay them on the altar wherever you're able. As you come, please don't leave. Would you just stay and join us in prayer? God wants to do a miracle for you in this service. God wants to provide for you right now. So as you bring your commitment, would you just step back and stay near the front? And would you lift your heart to the Lord? And would you lift your voice to God? And would you allow God to minister to you today? The sovereign God, the providing God. Let's do that all across this congregation.